The scripture text for this morning's message is John chapter 5, verses 1 through 24. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, in Aramaic called Bethesda, which, was, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one but is given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Father, that's an amazing promise that if we hear your words and believe the one who sent you, we don't ever come into judgment. We have passed from death to life. So I ask now that you would grant to my listeners that they would hear your words, not mine, yours, and believe on the one whom 
who sent you that they might have life and be on the other side of judgment. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. There are three main issues in this text, one of which we dealt with uh, two weeks ago, namely the one regarding the man's healing. He was at the pool of Bethesda. He had been paralyzed for 38 years. Jesus walks among that large multitude of people, and he picks out one man, and he, he heals him. And then he disappears so fast that the man doesn't even know who healed him. And we wonder, what was that about? Why did he heal him if he's just going to vanish? He doesn't even know who healed him. So what can the man learn about Jesus or about the meaning of his own healing? And, and when the Jews ask him, who, who, who told you to carry your bed on the Sabbath and who healed you? He, he said, I don't know who did it. Because he had gotten away because of the crowd. Jesus didn't want to draw attention to the miracle per se, did he? Because what happened next, verse 14, afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse happened to you. In other words, I'm tracking you down to make sure you understand what I did by the pool. I healed you in order that you might be holy. I healed you that you might be holy. Don't sin anymore. That's what holiness is. I took away your sickness as a step toward taking away your sin. That's what I did. I want you to understand that. So the first main issue in this text has to do with healing and holiness. None of Jesus' miracles was an end in itself. None of his physical healings was an end in itself. They were all called, in this gospel especially, signs. They were pointing to something. And if you miss what they were pointing to, Jesus gets upset. For example, in the next chapter, chapter 6, he feeds 5,000 people with a few loaves and fish. The people know it's a miracle, and they are thrilled with Jesus and his miracle-working power. And here's what Jesus says to them in uh, verse 26. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, this is chapter 6, verse 26. Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. In other words, you missed the sign quality of the miracle. You missed it. And he's not happy about that. So to believe in Jesus as a miracle worker doesn't make Jesus happy Per se, unless you see what the miracle working is about in the bigger picture. And for the man at Bethesda, it was about his holiness. So he follows him and he says, now I've healed you. Let me take you to the heart of what 
I'm in the world for. I do intend to take sickness away from the world in due time. But right now, I have come into this world especially to conquer sin and to pay for it at the cross. So, holiness is what I'm after in your life, mister. That's issue number one. That was two weeks ago. Second issue, there are three. I'll tell you what both of them are, and and then we'll take them one at a time. The second issue is the relationship between Jesus and his Father, Jesus and God. That's huge in this text. And the third issue, the third issue is the fact that this happened on Sabbath. What does that mean? Why did Jesus choose to do a sickness-removing, sin-removing miracle on Sabbath? Why? So those are the two things we'll focus on today. So let's take number two. Next, verse 16, they're persecuting him, Jesus. This is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Now, Jesus has an answer to that. I'm going to leave aside the Sabbath issue for a moment, because Jesus and the Jews leave it aside for a moment. Verse 17, Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. Now, when the Jews heard him say that, plus everything else that they were hearing him say, they concluded something that turned their persecution into a plan to kill. They were persecuting him. Now they're intending to kill him. What did they see? What did they hear? Verse 18. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath... But he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Making himself equal with God. Now, the the most important thing for you to see here is not that you understand why they concluded that. In fact, you may think that's an over overreaction. All he said was, my father's working and I'm working. Why would you conclude he's making himself equal with God? And of course, my answer to that is he, they were there. They were hearing how he said it, what he said, other things that he said, and they were inferring this man is talking as though God is not just a father, but as though he's one with God, essentially one, equal with God. The most important thing for you to see is not that you understand why they said that, but that Jesus let it stand. He didn't say, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Don't, 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 don't impute to me a claim to be God. 
that would be blasphemy, that would be heresy. Don't talk like that. I didn't say that. He didn't say that. He let it stand. In fact, he not only let it stand, he went on and made it obvious and worse. There are um, three ways that he unpacks the implications of his equality with God. And he's always acting in perfect harmony with the Son. And three, two implications for our life today that flow from, from this. So let's do that one at a time. First, the Son only does what he sees the Father doing. Let's read verse 19 and 20. So Jesus said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, <clears throat> the Son can do nothing. The Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. Now, the most radical and important statement in those two verses is the second half of verse 19. Make sure you see it. It says, Jesus speaking, Whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. That's going way beyond saying, I only do the kinds of things the Father does, or I only do what I see the Father doing. This is saying, everything the Father does, I do. Whatever the Father does, the Son does. Father creates the world, Son creates the world. That is a sweeping statement that would put these critics of his, I'm sure, over the edge. You say that I am making myself equal with God? Well, let me say it back to you. Whatever the Father does, I do. I mean, what if you said that? Everything God does, I do. So it's pretty clear. He's not rejecting what they said. He's accepting what they said. And he's giving them more reasons to believe it and get himself killed. So, my first observation is that the Son acts in perfect synchronization with the Father because He's equal with the Father, and whatever the Father does, He does. Here's the second one. This one is not as easy to see. I commend it to you. You consider it. I'm arguing now, secondly, that not only does the Son do everything the Father does, but that the Father always acts in perfect harmony with the Son and doesn't go off on His own way, but acts in synchronization with the Son, and I'm basing it on verse 22, and verse 22 doesn't look like it says that, but 
consider it. Here's what verse 22 says. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. When you read a verse like that, you can't throw away everything you've just read, for example, in verse 19. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Does that mean, then, the Son doesn't do what He sees the Father doing? He judges and the Father doesn't. So verse 19 is wrong. I don't read the Bible that way. I read verse 19, whatever the Father does, the Son does. And then when I get to verse 22 and it says, the Father judges no man, has given all judgment to the Son, I say, okay, well, wait a minute. What do you mean by that? What do you mean? What does the Father judges no man mean? Is it an absolute statement? God's not involved in judgment at all. God doesn't judge anybody. And then I remember chapter 3, verse 36, where if you don't obey the Son, you remain under the wrath of God. God judging you. So I'm not going to absolutize the first half of verse 22 and say God has nothing to do with with judgment. I'm going to ask, what what do you mean the Father judges no man and has given all judgment to the Son? And here's what I think he means. I think he means the Father judges no one on his own. The Father judges no one by becoming the frontline historical decisive point at which people go to the right or go to the left. He gives that to Jesus. He gives that to Jesus. And he says in verse uh, 23, second half of verse 23, whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Now, what does that mean? That means when I'm determining how to see that people are judged, this is God the Father talking, when I'm determining how to see that people are judged, I don't put myself out there for them to respond to directly. I go back and I put my son in front of me and I give all this kind of judgment to the son. There's the son and whatever people make of the son, that they make of me. And I'm, I'm flying in tandem with the son in history. As the son is presented and people honor him, I'm honored. As they dishonor him, I'm dishonored. And he is the, the judging that goes through the world with people being divided on the right and the left by whether they honor Him. I think that's the gist of verse 22. I don't judge in the sense that I don't put myself forward as the criterion, as the historical criterion by which people meet it and go to the right or go to the left, go to hell, go to heaven, go to worship, go to blasphemy. Rather, what they make of Jesus decides their destiny. I'm back here endorsing, approving, agreeing, receiving, but he's out there 
as the decisive historical judgment point. So they're still in harmony with each other, and the Son is doing what the Father is doing in the sense that they are in perfect agreement with regard to who is being judged as honoring or not honoring God, the Father. So, there are two implications that flow from this, these things that I have just said. The Son in perfect step with the Father and equal with the Father. The Father always in perfect step with the Son, but in the case of judgment, putting His Son at the front cutting edge of the historical criterion of who is saved. Implication number one. This is huge because this is one of the pieces from last Sunday's sermon that was, that was heavy. I don't know if you remember this sentence from last time or, yes, last week. The humblest witness, the humblest witness in the 21st century to Jesus as the only way to God will be accused of arrogance. I said that last week. Now, verse 23, the second half of the verse, implies... That in our world, this American world we live in, teeming with pluralism. This is the world we're given, very much like the first century. Teeming with pluralism. I live surrounded by Muslims in downtown Minneapolis. That's new. wasn't true when I grew up. Everybody I walked among was an Episcopalian or a Presbyterian or a Baptist or a Catholic or something like that in Greenville, South Carolina. And today, almost every other person I meet is of another kind of religion. Not just Christianity, Buddhists, Hindus, Muslims. We live in a world teeming with pluralism and no religion. The new atheism today is so virulent and so aggressive and so popular and the, and the left in its most radical forms of secularism is so prominent that the world we live in compared to the world I grew up in in this country is very different, very different. And we are told in verse 23, whoever honors the Son, or dishonors the Son, dishonors the Father. So, if you want to know which Hindu, which Buddhist, which Muslim, which uh, spiritualist has a saving, honoring relationship with the Creator of the universe, you tell them about Jesus. And if they honor Him as Savior and Lord they know God. And if they don't, they don't know God. Nothing could be more offensive in our day than verse 23b. Nothing is more offensive in our day than to say, whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father. And keep in mind, he's saying this to Jewish people who totally were devoted to God and didn't know Him or honor Him. He wasn't saying this to pagans 
So he was in our setting. Oh, I'd love to tell you stories about a lunch I had with a Jewish person two weeks ago who's been coming on Saturday night and may be a Christian by now. Never in a Christian church before about a month ago. Seeking, seeking. And I'm talking like this with this person. And they're not being driven away because I'm saying God loves Jewish people. He loves Muslim people. That's why He's pointing them to the sun. We're willing to go to places and die for this. The church has always died for this. That's why they get killed. Jesus gets killed for claiming to be equal with God. We get killed for claiming He's the only one who's equal with God and you have to know Him. I haven't done a missionary martyr funeral yet in my 29 years. But I expect to. That's implication number one. Verse 23 in our pluralistic day is very, very dangerous and you will be accused of arrogance and please don't accept that accusation. Implication number two is glorious beyond words. Verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever, whoever, this is any religion at all, whoever hears my word, believes him who sent me, has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. This is too good to be true. He's not saying merely, you will have eternal life. He's saying, you have it. The life that has come into you through faith in Jesus will never go away. It is eternal. You are an eternally blessed person if you are a believer in Jesus Christ. Eternal life is a reality, a power that is in you now and cannot ever be taken away from you. And then it gets even better. At least it gets more specific. He says... Not only will you not come into judgment, you are now already on the other side of judgment. That's what it says. Let's read it again. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has, present tense now, not will have, has eternal life. And then he does not come into judgment, why not, but has passed from death to life. Why, has your, why will you not come into judgment, Christian? Why will you not come into condemning judgment? Answer, it happened at Calvary. You were judged at Calvary. His death, Christ's death became your death. Christ's curse from the Father became your curse. His crucifixion, your crucifixion, which is why Paul says, I am crucified with Christ. And His resurrection, your resurrection, we are seated with Him at the right hand of the Father, Ephesians 2. Everything decisive about your judgment is over. That's the most glorious thing in this passage, I think, under Christ himself as equal with God. 
that our judgment is past. There is therefore now no for those who are in Christ Jesus. Oh, Christian, live in the triumph of this. Get in Satan's face and tell him to get out of here. Late at night, early in the morning, whenever you get attacked, take authority in this truth. So that is now the second main issue here, namely the relationship of the Father with the Son. Last issue is not quite as long, namely the Sabbath issue. So we had three issues, the healing issue, the identity with the Father and the Son issue, and now what about the Sabbath issue? Let's go to verse 16, set stage here. This was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. Because he was doing these things, namely his healing, on the Sabbath. Now, Jesus uh, knows that's their criticism. They don't say it directly to him in the text. Uh, he, he knows it. They've said it. So he's going to explain to them what's up. So he explained to the man he healed, what's up with you is holiness. I healed you for your holiness. I took away your sickness so that you won't sin. Now he's going to say to the Jews, okay, I did this on Sabbath. I'm going to tell you what that means. I'm going to tell you why I did it on Sabbath and what implications you should draw from my Sabbath. I want to say breaking because they called it breaking. And he didn't deny it was breaking. Probably wasn't breaking. But that isn't where he goes. Here's where he goes. Verse 17. My father is working until now, and I am working. So they're accusing him of working on, on Sabbath. You're working. You're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. And he says, my father's working. And I always do what my father does. I'm working. That's all he says. <laughs> Let me tell you what I think that means. I think this is awesome. I think he's saying, the Father and I created the world. It was beautiful. It was a paradise. It was perfect. And we rested on the seventh day, not because we were tired. We never get tired. We stepped back, as it were, to simply enjoy the manifestation of our glory in the paradise of a universe that we made perfectly. It was redolent, radiant with our glory, and we enjoyed it. I think that's the essence of what Sabbath is. Sabbath is a day set aside for the enjoyment of the glory of God in a restful way. That's what Sabbath is, or the Lord's Day now, since Jesus has risen from the dead. But that's not where this text is going. This text is not going about behaviors on Sunday. This text is all about my Father is working on the Lord's Day, and I am working on the Sabbath, Sabbath, Sabbath. We made it 
It was beautiful. We rested. And then sin entered the world and broke it. And when sin came into the world, sickness came into the world. Like at the pool of Bethesda, that mass of people ruined and broken by the fall. And death came into the world and calamity came into the world. And this world isn't the way we made it to be. And as soon as that happened, on the very day when this world fell under my father's curse, he and I started working again. And we've been working until now. I think that's what he means when he says, my father is working until now. Meaning, from the day this world was broken, my father started to repair. You may not understand why it's taken so many thousands of years, and you may get in our face. The world always criticizes the way God does things, which is why at the end of Romans 9 to 11, which describes the incredible way God is saving the world, he says, oh, the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how inscrutable are his judgments and how unsearchable are his ways. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given a gift to him that he should be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever. That's why Romans 9 to 11 ends that way. Because it He's saving the world in such a roundabout, long, strange, involved Nobody would ever thought of way, but he is. Oh, he is. One thousand years with the Lord is as a day. He hasn't been at work a long time. A few days. And when we set ourselves to work, we gave you a law. You're quoting the law to me. You're quoting the law to me. Don't do this on Sabbath. Yes, we gave the Sabbath. It was part of the law. And the whole law was given as a dam against the river of human corruption. It was given to minimize the pain that comes into the world through unrighteousness and sin. It was given to point you to a Messiah and a Savior who alone could do the redeeming work. And now I've come into the world and I'm here and I pause on Sabbath at the pool of Bethesda and I heal a man in order to show him what the new world is going to be like we are about paradise making I'm not going to do it the way you think I'm going to do it I will finish it when I come the second time and I will redeem all the bodies I will take away all sickness I will put away all disease and I will dry tears from every cheek of those who believe me and I am here to take away sin so sickness is going to go and sin is going to go do you see the connection now between what he did with the man and the Sabbath issue and the divine issue it's all one piece here it all works together I have a few months left. I intend to keep doing works that point to the kingdom, the kind of world that I'm going to make someday. 
I'm pointing to healings and I'm pointing to exorcisms and I'm pointing to forgiveness of sin. There'll be no sin. There'll be no sickness. There'll be no Satan in that world. What a magnificent world it's going to be someday when I finish my work. I have a few months to point to it and then I'm going to do the decisive victory. And I'm going to die for sin and by my stripes this world will be healed in due time. I think that's what he's saying. My father is working until now, even though at first he rested on that day when everything was perfect and beautiful. As soon as this world fell, my father and I went to work and we've been working to this day and we're going to work on every day of every week until we have Sabbath alone in this universe. And we are now recruiting a people who will join us for an eternal Sabbath rest where we will step back now in a new heavens and a new earth and enjoy forever the revelation of the glory of God in paradise. So I think probably this is my, this is my feel for how Jesus felt as he, as he concluded this part. He's looking at these Jewish people. They're his kinsmen. He loves them. He's going to die for these people. And he feels the way the father in the parable of the prodigal son felt. He had a young son, and he was dead. And now he's alive. And there's a party going on in the house. And that's like the man at the pool. 38 years, and now he's walking. And there's a party going on somewhere. And these Jews are saying, you did it on Saturday. And I think Jesus is saying to him, look, you're like my older son. Everything I have is yours. Are you going to look at my pointers toward no sickness and no sin done on Sabbath, which is where it's all going. It's all about Sabbath. And complain. Won't you come into the party, son? Because if you stay on the porch, you won't ever enjoy the party. So that's my word to you. I just hope that every one of us here will feel thrilled that we have a Savior like this. That he's, He cares about bodies. And He's going to heal them all someday if we'll come into the party. And He cares about sin. He hates sin. He says, sin no more. And he dies for sin. And come in and have forgiveness. So that's my word to you is, come on in. Come on in. Healing will come. Some now, some later. Forgiveness comes totally now. And then we stop sinning later when the power completely takes over. Let's pray. In fact, since it's late, why don't you stand with me And we'll make this our closing prayer. Father in heaven, thank you for Christ. Thank you that you have put all judgment into his hand and that what we make of him, we make of you. If we honor him, we honor you. If we dishonor him, we dishonor you. And we do honor him, Father, and we do honor you. And we now say, we receive, we receive this word 
We receive you through this word. And we believe that we have passed from death to life. And that we will not come into judgment. And that we have eternal life. And we are thankful. Cause us to walk in all humility with this, I pray. Even when we have to say to the world, if you don't honor the Son, you don't honor God. Keep us humble through that, loving and longing, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.